This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that. Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So, as we start the new year, there's some good news and some bad news about the future of the planet. So first, let's do the bad news. We'll get to the good news in a minute, but let's just get the bad stuff out of the way. Because the last time this amount of carbon dioxide was in our atmosphere was probably back in the Pliocene epoch millions of years ago, when giant creatures like mastodons still roamed the Earth when there wasn't much of an ice sheet, and what we now think of as Florida and New Jersey were totally underwater. And today, well, we're on track to exceed those carbon dioxide levels by a lot. In fact, by an unprecedented amount. And this is changing our climate enormously. This is Tim Kruger. He studies climate change at the University of Oxford. So we will see temperatures rise very rapidly. And that will cause massive changes in terms of agriculture, uh, natural systems, biodiversity. But it's more than that. We will also see the oceans becoming increasingly acidified. So more CO2 will move from the atmosphere into the oceans and the pH of the oceans will, will come down. And that will affect organisms at the base of the food chain in the ocean with very severe consequences. What is, what is the maximum temperature rise that scientists think humans can deal with? So uh, most of the world, and unfortunately not the country where you're based, but most of the world is committed to the Paris Agreement. And what that says is that we will aim to stop the temperature rise between one and a half and two degrees above pre-industrial levels. If it goes beyond that, you will see species going extinct. You will see coral reefs being irreparably damaged. Can we as humans survive as the temperature goes up on the planet? Yes, probably we can, but it will be an impoverished planet that we hand on to future generations. So I think that we have problems around food security. We have problems uh, about global leadership, about economics and the inequality there and migration. But climate change is something that is going to affect all of those and it's going to be made considerably worse by uh, its actions. Today on the show, we're going to explore all of those problems, climate change, our political systems, whether we'll have enough food to feed everyone, refugees and migration, and the growing inequality between the richest people and the poorest. And we're calling these the Big Five, ideas about the five biggest issues that will affect all humans, and whether, with help from some radical solutions, we can stop them. And as we heard from Tim Kruger, climate change is the biggest one of all, and the one that's kind of hard for people to really feel and grasp. It's like a a tidal wave made of treacle. It's moving towards us incredibly slowly, And we need to make sure that we 
uh, are aware of it, but it's very difficult to alert people to the danger as this danger comes closer and closer because it seems so slow. But here's a little bit of good news. Finally, right? Now, we could potentially stop this. If the world could get its act together, we might eventually reverse the effects of climate change. But it's going to take a lot of dedication, a lot of ideas, a lot of money, and a lot of work. Because not only do we have to reduce CO2 from the atmosphere, we also need to remove it. And what most people don't realize is that the climate models that are used to understand how we can avoid crossing the two-degree threshold, they assume that we have technologies that can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Oh, wow. They assume it at a massive scale. They assume that we can remove between 600 and 800 billion tons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in the decades ahead. And these models are ones that also assume heroically optimistic levels of mitigation. So in reality, we are going to need to remove trillions of tons, trillions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in the decades ahead. So how? What do you... I mean, it sounds like you're talking about something bigger than, you know, World War II and the Marshall Plan and the Manhattan Project all combined, like the biggest thing humans have ever done. I think that we are going to face a multi-generational challenge to restore the atmosphere. And not only does Tim think about removing all that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, he's actually trying to do it. Here's Tim Kruger on the TED stage. I work uh, assessing a whole range of these proposed techniques to see if they can work. We could use plants to take CO2 out and then store it in trees, in the soil, deep underground, or in the oceans. We could build large machines, so-called artificial trees, that will scrub CO2 from the air. For these ideas to be feasible, we need to understand whether they can be applied at a vast scale in a way that is safe, economic, and socially acceptable. All of these ideas come with trade-offs. None of them are perfect, but many have potential. It's unlikely that any one of them will solve it on its own. There is no silver bullet, but potentially together they may form the silver buckshot that we need to stop climate change in its tracks. I'm working independently on one particular idea which uses natural gas to generate electricity in a way that takes carbon dioxide out of the air. Huh? How does that work? So the origin power process feeds natural gas into a fuel cell. About half the chemical energy is converted into electricity and the remainder into heat, which is used to break down limestone into lime and carbon dioxide. It's actually generating carbon dioxide. But the key point is all of the carbon dioxide generated, both from the fuel cell and from the lime kiln, is pure. And that's really important because it means you can either use that carbon dioxide or you can store it away deep underground at low cost. And then the lime that you produce can be used in industrial processes, and in being used, it scrubs CO2 out of the air. Overall, the process is carbon negative. It removes carbon dioxide from the air. 
If you normally generate electricity from natural gas, you emit about 400 grams of CO2 into the air for every kilowatt hour. With this process, that figure is minus 600. At the moment, power generation is responsible for about a quarter of all carbon dioxide emissions. Hypothetically, if you replaced all power generation with this process, then you would not only eliminate all of the emissions from power generation, but you would start removing emissions from other sectors as well, potentially cutting 60% of overall carbon emissions. So, okay, just so I understand this, once this process is done, once you've removed the carbon dioxide from the air, the like byproduct is lime, is limestone? Yeah, that's right. So the whole process is kind of using the limestone as a kind of intermediate product. So you start off with limestone, you end up with limestone, but the net result of the process is that you have taken dilute carbon dioxide out of the air and generated pure carbon dioxide. And that's important because uh, once you have pure carbon dioxide, you can bury that deep underground. If you've just got dilute carbon dioxide, you can't bury it underground as it is. So when you say you can store away that carbon dioxide underground, mm -hmm. what does that look like? Is it like a liquid? Is it a, a gas? What is? I mean, describe what it means to store it underground. So what you do is you compress the CO2 into a, a state called a supercritical fluid. And that is something which is kind of partway between a, a gas and a liquid. It's got characteristics of both. And you inject it deep underground. And there it will react with the rocks and remain stored deep underground. So part of the storage is what's known as physical. It gets trapped in gaps underground. And part of it is chemical. It will react with the rocks underground. But basically, once you inject it, it stays there. It's down there for good. So, I mean, as promising as this technology sounds, because it sounds incredible that we could we could actually start to, um, you know, clean up the mess that we've created over the past 250, 300 years, um, it sounds a little bit like, you know, a, a mission to Mars. Like we know, humans know that we can get a, a something to Mars. We've done it before. Uh, so we should be able to get humans to Mars. But there are some challenges, like how do you bring up enough water for a six-month journey in a spacecraft, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, that'll be resolved at some point, but but we can't do it right now. It's, it sounds like it's similar to this, that this is not something we can implement today. No, and it, it isn't something we can implement today. So we should not in any way cut back on any of our efforts to reduce emissions. So th that's got to be the top priority. But even if we reduce emissions incredibly rapidly, it's not enough on its own. We need these technologies to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. It's not available today. It won't be available for many years to come. But we need to try. Um, there's a, a story about a man who fell on hard times and he prayed and he said, please God, let me win the lottery, let me win the lottery. And he didn't win the lottery. And the next week he said, I'm in a real bind. I really need to get some money. You know, let me win the lottery. And still he didn't win it. And the third time he climbed up to the top of a mountain. He said, I'm going to throw myself off. I'm going to kill myself. God, you've got to help me on this. And just as he was about to throw himself off, uh, there was a roll of thunder and a, a booming voice rang out. He said, for goodness sake, man, meet me halfway. Buy a ticket. And that's what we need to do. We actually need to try 
It's no good saying, well, we need to do this and we actually need to put the resources behind it. The question comes, who would do this? And at the moment, really, no one. So we could have the ideas, but without there being some sort of motivation, some sort of incentive to do so, it's just not going to happen. We need to, to raise our game significantly if we are going to be able to address this problem. Tim Kruger, he researches geoengineering at the University of Oxford. He's currently working on a smaller prototype of the technology he described on the TED stage. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, the five biggest problems that face the world and what we might do to stop them. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Tax Act. Tax season is here, and if you've got questions like if you're getting the biggest refund, Tax Act has you covered. With their deduction maximizer designed with freelancers and the self-employed in mind and the 100K accuracy guarantee, you can feel confident that you're maximizing your deductions and your refund. So to get the most out of tax season, visit taxact.com slash radio hour to get 25% off federal and state filing. Thanks also to GoToMeeting, a collaboration platform for the modern workforce. Businesses across the globe count on GoToMeeting for simple, reliable online meetings anywhere from any device. With nearly 60 million frictionless meetings supported each year, GoToMeeting is where real work gets done. Learn more at GoToMeeting.com. How much would you pay to avoid morning traffic? Why are plane tickets to Boise so expensive? I'm Cardiff Garcia, co-host of The Indicator. In every episode, we take on a new unexpected idea to help you make sense of the day's news. Listen every afternoon on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, The Big Five. Ideas about the large-scale global problems we face and how we might be able to solve them. Problems like human displacement. The movement of people, uh, not just for economic reasons, but for political reasons, reasons of war, persecution, are going to be some of the most challenging questions in public policy. Hundreds of thousands of migrants have streamed into Europe. This refugee crisis in Europe continues to spiral. Boatload after boatload of migrants arriving. The picture of a child washed ashore in Turkey has Where become... are they coming from? Where are they going? They're the worst refugee crisis faced by Europe since World War II, and people keep coming. So far this year, more than 120,000 people have arrived I think it's absolutely right to see this in historical perspective. This is David Miliband, the former British Foreign Secretary, now the head of the International Rescue Committee. And I think it's important to understand that one major difference from the Second World War is that people are fleeing today not wars between states, but wars within states. Today, the great drivers of flight, the war in Syria, the war in Afghanistan, 
the conflict in Burma, Myanmar, those are wars within states, those are so-called civil wars, uh, and they are burning for longer in the post-Cold War period, since the end of the Cold War in 1990, uh, than uh, in any period in human history. And so you've got this extraordinary position where world records are being smashed for the number of people fleeing as refugees and displaced people, but you've also got the extraordinary length duration of these civil wars that are producing unrivaled, unmatched levels of cruelty. Today, there are 65 million forcibly displaced people in the world, and about a third of them are refugees, or people who can't safely return home. And most of them are children fleeing to mostly poor neighboring countries. There are countries like Jordan or Lebanon, countries like Kenya or Ethiopia, countries like Bangladesh, where the so-called Rohingya Muslims have just fled from Myanmar. Um, the U.S., over 20% of global income, is responsible for holding about 1% of the world's refugees, Europe 6%. So the strains and stresses are magnified in countries that are struggling with relatively low incomes and relatively low levels of development of their own. So... Why has this crisis reached this point today? I mean, you know, we're more interconnected. Um, you know, we have access to more information around the world. Um, we understand what it means to be a refugee better than ever before. And yet we've reached this point globally that is unprecedented since the Second World War. What? Why? I think there are three main reasons for uh, to understand the depth and breadth of the refugee crisis today. Uh, the first is the weakness and division of the global political system, uh, reflecting a retreat from diplomacy, a retreat from the global stage by the West, uh, perhaps humbled by the failures in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, enfeebled by the financial crisis. Secondly, a growing number of fragile states. Uh, partly reflecting the interconnectedness of the modern world, fragile states that are unable to develop political systems that can contain religious, ethnic, political difference within peaceful boundaries. I'm thinking of places like South Sudan, the world's newest nation, very weak political institutions, riven by conflict now, and a million refugees decamping to Uganda. And the third reason is one where there's a lot of fear-mongering, and it's to do with big changes within parts of the Islamic world. Hmm. It's striking that uh, if you think about Syria, if you think about Afghanistan, there are major schisms within the Muslim majority, within some Muslim majority countries. They reflect a schism of theology, about engagement with the wider world, about uh, differences within Islam. And none of these three factors are short-term, and that's what leads me to describe this crisis as a trend and not a blip. Here's David Miliband on the TED stage. When Pope Francis went to Lampedusa, off the coast of Italy in 2014, he accused all of us and the global population of what he called the globalization of indifference. It's a haunting phrase. It means that our hearts have turned to stone. But I think it's not right. I think people do want to make a difference, but they just don't know whether there are any solutions to this crisis. And what I want to tell you today is that though the problems are real, the solutions are real too. Solution one, these refugees need to get into work in the countries where they're living, and the countries where they're living need massive economic support. In Uganda in 2014, they did a study 80% of refugees in the capital city, Kampala, needed no humanitarian aid because they were working, they were supported into work. 
Solution number two: education for kids is a lifeline, not a luxury, when you're displaced for so long. Kids can bounce back when they're given the proper social, emotional support alongside literacy and numeracy. I've seen it for myself. But half of the world's refugee children of primary school age get no education at all, and three quarters of secondary school age get no education at all. That's crazy. Solution number three: most refugees are in urban areas, in cities, not in camps. What would you or I want if we were a refugee in a city? We'd want money to pay rent or buy clothes. That is the future of the humanitarian system, or a significant part of it. Give people cash so that you boost the power of refugees, and actually you help the local economy. And there's a fourth solution too, that's controversial but needs to be talked about. The most vulnerable refugees need to be given a new start and a new life in a new country, including in the West. The numbers are relatively small, hundreds of thousands, not millions, but the symbolism is huge. So, do, do you think we'll actually do any of those things? I mean, when we're looking out now, like 40 or 50 years from now, will we be able to look back and say, "Wow, that's a really terrible time back in, in you know, in the early part of the 21st century"? Uh, but we've solved this problem. Well, I hope so. But the world has a tendency to invent new problems rather than just solve、uh, old ones,、um, and. People said never again after the Second World War.、Yeah. They said never again after the Rwanda crisis of the 1990s, and here we go again with the Syria、uh, crisis. I think that、um, my own view is that the demands of an interconnected world、uh, and the demand above all for the global management of global public goods of the security, the health, the、um, responsibility that we hold in common, the climate that we hold in common, the pressure for global action is going to grow. Uh, but I think that the great challenge is to make sure that the conditions don't simply improve for most of us,、uh, leaving a minority of whom refugees would be a prime example further and further behind. And, and David, we should mention that you you yourself are are descendant of refugees, right? Yep, that's right.、Uh, my my parents were both refugees.、Uh, my dad was a refugee from Belgium in 1940. My mum was a refugee to the UK. Uh, from Poland in 1946, both Jews who'd survived the war. Well, my dad escaped when the Nazis invaded Belgium. My mum survived the war in Poland. So, in a small way, I feel I'm repaying a debt to the people who helped my、uh, parents and relatives more generally.、Um, but obviously, the times are different. The religion is often different. But that doesn't mean that the humanity should be different. In 1942. My aunt and my grandmother were living in Brussels under German occupation. They received a summons from the Nazi authorities to go to Brussels railway station. My grandmother immediately thought something was amiss. She pleaded with her relatives not to go to Brussels railway station. Her relatives said to her, "If we don't go, if we don't do what we're told." Then we're going to be in trouble. You can guess what happened to the relatives who went to Brussels railway station. They were never seen again. But my grandmother and my aunt, they went to a small village south of Brussels, where they'd been on holiday in the decade before, and they presented themselves at the house of the local farmer, a Catholic farmer called Monsieur Maurice. 
and they asked him to take them in. And he did. And by the end of the war, 17 Jews, I was told, were living in that village. And when I was a teenager, I asked my aunt, can you take me to meet Monsieur Maurice? And she said, yeah, I can. He's still alive. Let's go and see him. And I suppose, like a, uh, only a teenager could, I, when I met him, I said to him, why did you do it? Why did you take that risk? And he looked at me and he shrugged and he said in French, on doit, one must. It was innate in him. It was natural. And my point to you is it should be a natural and innate in us too. Tell yourself, this refugee crisis is manageable, not unsolvable. And each one of us has a personal responsibility to help make it so. Because this is about the rescue of us and our values, as well as the rescue of refugees and their lives. Thank you very much indeed. David Miliband, he runs the International Rescue Committee. And he's written a book about these issues. It's called Rescue. You can see his full talk at TED.com. Today on the show, the big five, the biggest challenges we all face and whether they can be solved. And another one of those challenges, political instability. I think that's right. And one of the reasons why this geopolitical period is going to be so uncertain is because we don't yet have the answers of what comes next. This is Ian Bremmer. He's a political scientist. The comparative stability of the geopolitical environment led by the United States was a long cycle. It started after World War II. Obviously, the Cold War was a big part of it, but still the U.S. had driven all of the architecture, the WTO, the United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank. I mean, all of these global institutions, those are now unwinding. And Ian says these institutions are unwinding because the United States is abandoning its leadership role in the world. No one's in charge now. The U.S. is still the world's only superpower, but it's absolutely not leading the world. Ian Bremmer explains how we got here from the TED stage. Well, we're here because uh, the United States, right? I mean, we spent $2 trillion on wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that were failed. We don't want to do that anymore. We have large numbers of middle and working classes that feel like they've not benefited from promises of globalization, so they don't want to see it particularly. The Americans don't want to be the global sheriff for security or the architect of global trade. The Americans don't want to even be the cheerleader of global values. Well, then you look to Europe, and the most important alliance in the world has been the transatlantic relationship. But it is now weaker than it has been at any point since World War II. China does want to do more leadership. They do, but only in the economic sphere. And they want their own value standards currency in competition with that of the U.S. The Russians want to do more leadership. You see that in Ukraine, in the Baltic states, in the Middle East, but not with the Americans. They want their own preferences in order. That's why we are where we are. The G20 doesn't work. The G7, all of our friends, that's history. And it's not, the problem is it's not a G20. The problem is it's a G0. 
world that we live in, a world order where there is no single country or alliance that can meet the challenges of global leadership. So what happens going forward? Let's start easy with the Middle East. There are three reasons why the Middle East has had stability such as it is. One is because there was a willingness to provide some level of military security by the U.S. and allies. Number two, it was easy to take a lot of cheap money out of the ground because oil was expensive. And number three was no matter how bad the leaders were, the populations were relatively quiescent. Well, all three of those things are increasingly not true. And so failed states, terrorism, refugees, and the rest. Okay, how about a lot of people have said it's going to be Africa's decade finally in a G0 world. It is absolutely an amazing time for a few African countries. Those governed well with a lot of urbanization, a lot of smart people, women really getting into the workforce, entrepreneurship taking off. But for most of the countries in Africa, it's going to be a lot more dicey. Extreme climate conditions, radicalism both from Islam and also Christianity, very poor governance, borders you can't defend, lots of forced migration, those countries can fall off the map. Okay, let's turn to Europe. Europe does look a little scared in this environment. So much of what's happening in the Middle East is washing up, quite literally, onto European shores. You see Brexit, and you see the concerns of populism across all of the European states. Core Europe around Germany and France and others will still work, be functional, stable, wealthy, integrated. But the periphery, countries like Greece and Turkey and others, will not look that good at all. So if, if you're looking ahead at, you know, in the next sort of 10 or 20 years, how do we get to a, a place where we, you know, where, where the, there will be more stability, where, where there will be strong governance? Well, I think there are a few possibilities. One is that we end up with a really big crisis that's so large that everybody responds and creates something new and it requires big leadership. And those crises could be what? I mean, there could be a massive cyber attack that you know uh, undermines critical infrastructure of major economies. And so you're you know, driven into a global depression. And I think we'll find leadership. I mean, you know, a second one, I mean, a war between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia that engulfs the entire Middle East and really spikes energy prices before the energy revolution becomes global. That would be another one that would force the Americans, the Chinese, the Russians, others to actually work together, right? A third possibility is that central governments keep getting weaker and uh, then it's not going to be about states. Then the future is going to be much more decentralized and you see a constellation of cities and corporations and super wealthy individuals that work together to start cobbling together uh, solutions to problems such as they exist. Now, that last solution is probably one that has a much more unequal world than what we are used to right now, but you know, not necessarily more unequal than some periods of human history. So basically, there are no good options? That's right. It's volatile. Hmm. In, in all your time analyzing global risk, do you think that this is the most challenging time that, that you've seen and analyzed uh, from here in the U.S.? Absolutely. It absolutely is. I mean, I wasn't around during the Cuban Missile Crisis, so maybe that would have felt worse. But 
I mean, I, I think that the existential threat to humanity today is vastly greater than at any point since I've been alive. Um, but, you know, the way I, I just think that that infuses our lives with more purpose. It means that we've got to, uh, we're going to have to do more. You know, humanity at our most creative, we have technologies today. If you look at improvements in food technology and how much we can produce on a hectare of land, if you look at, you know, the extraordinary gains we've made in renewable energy, uh, we only show our best when we're really challenged. I think that anyone that really takes a look at that, it needs to be optimistic. Political scientist Ian Bremmer. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about the Big Five. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible. Subaru, whose love promise is a dedication to supporting communities. For Tucson retailer Rocky Di Cristofano, that just makes sense. It's simple in concept that we're trying to be involved and make the place we live a better place. And everybody goes to work knowing that this is a part of what we do at Tucson Subaru. To learn more about the Subaru commitment to its customers and communities, visit Subaru.com slash love dash promise. Hello, just dropping in to remind you about Here and Now. We cover the day's most essential news with context so you know the why and what's next. A fast-paced snapshot of the world every day. Listen to Here and Now on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, the biggest challenges that affect us as a species. We're calling them the Big Five. And up next... You know, when I think of the end of the world, I think of food scarcity. This is Sarah Manker. And Sarah knows firsthand what can happen if a country runs out of food. I grew up in Ethiopia in the 80s during the famine, at a time when you had a communist government that rationed food. And I was lucky to come from a family where we got to eat. You know, we were fine. But I know what the consequences are. Today, Sarah does global data analysis of food and agriculture production around the world. And her research focuses on predicting a global food crisis basically the point at which the system's structural capacity to produce food Mm -hmm. can no longer meet demand. Is that a realistic possibility in in the future? I think it's a realistic possibility in the next decade. So it's it's in the near future. You're saying that in the near future, there is a possibility that, that planet Earth and the humans on planet Earth will not be able to feed all of the humans on planet Earth? Correct, yes. Sarah and her team ran the numbers, and she shared their findings on the TED stage. We discovered that the world will be short 214 trillion calories by 2027. The world is not in a position to fill this gap. 
An alternative way to think about this is to think about it in Big Macs. 214 trillion calories. A single Big Mac has 563 calories. That means the world will be short 379 billion Big Macs in 2027. That is more Big Macs than McDonald's has ever produced. So, how did we get to these numbers in the first place? This map shows you where the world was 40 years ago. It shows you. Okay, so what Sarah's map basically shows. Is that over the past 40 years, the U.S. and Brazil have become these agricultural powerhouses, but on the flip side, China has become extremely dependent on those countries for food, and that's because China's population has exploded to 1.3 billion people, and now there's an even bigger problem. So.、Um, The thing is, with China, diets are shifting rapidly. So, pe- as people have more protein-intense diets, they then actually need to consume a lot more calories. The animals need to consume more calories to basically then provide the meat that is necessary for the markets. I mean, you think about the price of, of meat, for example. When I was a kid, it was a very big deal to eat meat, to have a steak. Like we had steak, like. Twice a month, you know, and it was a big deal. Like my dad would grill them up in the backyard, and now you know, you people just buy steaks at, at the supermarket, and it's like nothing. That's exactly it. And now imagine a scenario where every Chinese person is buying steaks at the supermarket like it's nothing. And and so what happens then? That is the food crisis. That is exactly it. You know, at first, what happens is you have price increases, and when you have price increases, economic, you know, conditions stipulate that there will be more production. Yeah. But at some point, you hit the system's structural capacity to produce, right? And that scenario will have implications around the world because all these prices everywhere in the world are are connected to one another. Wait, can you connect the dots for me a little bit? Like, like how does the rising price of meat or demand for meat in China lead to instability in the West? Well, it leads to instability everywhere because increased demand for meat in China basically means increased demand for feedstock, right? And so now they're buying more corn and more soy to feed animals, and that then drives up prices of all you know underlying commodities, not just the price of meat, right?、Hmm. I mean, there's so many unintended consequences.、Uh, okay, but but here's what I don't get, right? So so in theory, couldn't countries like the U.S. and Brazil, which are producing most of the world's food, I mean, couldn't they just continue to produce most of the world's food and maybe all of the world's food if they were just more efficient about like exporting it? Well, the reality is that the ability to grow. More a in the U.S., for example, there is no more land. In Brazil, there's a lot of land, but you'll have to cut down the Amazon. And on the flip side, what you're having is, you know, if you look at the continent of Africa, India, and China, you know, in the next what six years by 2023, they will make up about 55 percent of the world's population. Wow. And so, I actually think some of the challenges we'll face will mimic. The last boom we had with China, except this time around, we're not prepared to meet it. What I just presented to you is a vision of an impossible world. We can do something to change that. The answer really lies in India, and in Africa. India 
has some unfarmed arable land remaining, but not much. Now, the African continent, on the other hand, has vast amounts of arable land remaining and significant upside potential and yields. Somewhat simplified picture here, but if you look at sub-Saharan African yields in corn today, they are where North American yields were in 1940. We don't have 70-plus years to figure this out. So we need to reform and commercialize the agricultural industries in Africa and in India. Commercialization is about leveraging data to craft better policies, to improve infrastructure, to lower the transportation costs, and to completely reform banking and insurance industries. Commercialization is about taking agriculture from too risky an endeavor to one where fortunes can be made. So, so would the idea be to, to basically convert large parts of land in Africa and India into large-scale farms that could produce, you know, food in the same way that, you know, big agribusiness farms in the U.S. do? Yeah, exactly. I know it sounds like this is a 50-year project, not a 10-year project, but the reality is we know exactly what to do. We have the numbers we need. We just need commitment. I, I've read that China... Um, probably very wisely, has purchased large tracts of land in Africa, right? Like like millions of acres, right? Yeah, in single countries at times. But the idea is to turn them into farms to produce food for China? It's it's the backup plan, right? If you have to. It's a little, It's I mean, it's I get it. It makes sense, but it's kind of creepy. You know, I, I always say it'd be better if our governments, and I, when I say our governments, I'm speaking as an African versus just an Ethiopian. Um if our governments were paying attention to this and prioritizing agriculture and food security the way China is for itself. In other words, they would say, wait a minute, why are we like selling all this land to China? Why don't we just turn it into better agricultural land and sell our food to China? Exactly. Make more money. Yeah. You know, Brazil's that today and, and Africa will become that. It's weird. It is, but it's it's planning. Yeah. And whatever the price we have to pay to do it, meaning... The, the sacrifices we make, we absolutely must. Sarah Menker, she's the founder and CEO of Grow Intelligence. You can see her full talk at TED.com. Okay, so we are at the last global challenge on our list of the big five, and that one is poverty. And while a lot of progress has been made in eradicating poverty, we are not there yet. More than 760 million people on Earth still live on less than $1.90 a day. And even though there have been countless programs and interventions to end poverty, it's still one of the most deadly problems humans face. Well, you're absolutely right, but it's also one of the biggest opportunities. I think it's low-hanging fruit, basically, uh, because there are so many challenges that, are, that lie ahead. Uh, that have very complicated solutions. You know, if we think about climate change, for example, it's an incredibly complicated subject. Yeah. Now, I've come to believe that poverty is not a very difficult subject. Huh. Poverty is just a lack of cash. This is Rutger Bregman. He's a journalist and historian. And Rutger studies the consequences of poverty around the world. Poverty is a huge waste of human capital. Um, If you... Look at something like child poverty, for example. There was just this week, there was a new study out 
uh, I read about today um, that shows uh, that we miss miss out on a on a lot of innovation because uh, you know a lot of kids don't get the opportunities that they deserve. Um, so often people talk about poverty in terms of can we afford this? Yeah. Well, what I think is we can't afford not to eradicate poverty. You know, what's really expensive is wasting the the human talent of millions of people. That's what we can't afford. Rucker says one of the biggest roadblocks when it comes to fighting poverty, whether it's in the U.S. or elsewhere, is that most of us don't really understand it. Here's Rucker Bregman on the TED stage. It was only a few years ago that I discovered that everything I thought I knew about poverty was wrong. It all started when I accidentally stumbled upon a paper by a few American psychologists. They had traveled 8,000 miles all the way to India for a fascinating study. And it was an experiment with sugarcane farmers. You should know that these farmers collect about 60% of their annual income all at once, right after the harvest. And this means that they're relatively poor one part of the year and rich the other. And the researchers asked them to do an IQ test before and after the harvest. What they subsequently discovered completely blew my mind. The farmers scored much worse on the tests before the harvest. The effects of living in poverty, it turns out, correspond to losing 14 points of IQ. It turns out that people behave differently when they perceive a thing to be scarce. And what that thing is doesn't much matter, whether it's not enough time, money or food. So suddenly, I understood why so many of our anti-poverty programs don't work. Investments in education, for example, are often completely ineffective. A recent analysis of 201 studies on the effectiveness of money management training came to the conclusion that it has almost no effect at all. This is not to say that the poor don't learn anything, but it's not enough. It's like teaching someone to swim and then throwing them in a stormy sea. That, I mean, that is remarkable that, that people lost up to 14 points of IQ mm-hmm. when they were living in poverty. Yeah, it's huge, isn't it? Yeah. And I think the, the implications of this are truly radical. Uh, I, th- I think the researchers themselves didn't even realize it because, you know, they've written a great book about this. They come up with such nuanced solutions, like very, very modest solutions. They say, oh, well, you can, you can give the poor, you give them a box of medicines that lights up every now and then so people remember to, to take their medicines or, or, or something like that, just to manage the context of poverty. But I read the book and thought, you know what, we need something way more radical. You know, not combat the symptoms, but solve the problem itself. The big question is, of course, what can be done? I remembered reading about an old plan, something that has been proposed by some of history's leading thinkers. Basic income guarantee. It's a monthly grant, enough to pay for your basic needs. Food, shelter, education. It's completely unconditional. There's absolutely no stigma attached. So as I learned about the true nature of poverty, I couldn't stop wondering. I mean, could it really be that simple? And it didn't take long before I stumbled upon the story of a town that had done it, had actually eradicated poverty. But then nearly everyone forgot about it. This story starts in Dauphin, Canada. In 1974, everybody in this small town was guaranteed a basic income, ensuring that no one fell below the poverty line. 
For four years, all went well. But then a new government was voted into power, and the new Canadian cabinet saw little point to the experiment. Twenty-five years went by, and then Evelyn Forget, a Canadian professor, found the records. Evelyn Forget discovered that the people in Dolphin had not only become richer but also smarter and healthier. The experiment had been a resounding success. Similar results have since been found in countless other experiments around the globe, from the U.S. to India. But let's talk about the elephant in the room: How could we ever afford a basic income guarantee? It's actually a lot cheaper than you may think. What they did in Dauphin is they financed it with a negative income tax, and this means that your income is topped up as soon as you fall below the poverty line. And in that scenario, according to our economists' best estimates, for a net cost of 175 billion, a quarter of U.S. military spending, one percent of GDP, you could lift all impoverished Americans above the poverty line. Now that should be our goal. So it would be basically wealthier people would pay for this through their taxes, which would then be converted into just cash transfers. I definitely like to finance the basic income in a way that it would reduce inequality. But don't get me wrong; I believe that even the rich will benefit because we know from a lot of studies that the costs of poverty are huge. You know, in terms of higher healthcare spending, higher crime rates, kids doing less well in school, and and everyone is paying for that. Um, so I believe that even the rich will benefit in the long run from from living in a more prosperous society. This is this is really probably the most important thing that I should emphasize in our conversation because we've entered a zero sum world, right? If if you win, I lose. If I win, you lose. Well, the great thing is that we can win together. You know, there's so many examples of that, and eradicating poverty is the best example. We all benefit. George Orwell, one of the greatest writers who ever lived, experienced poverty firsthand in the 1920s. The essence of poverty, he wrote back then, is that it annihilates the future. Just imagine how many brilliant scientists and entrepreneurs and writers like George Orwell are now withering away in scarcity. Imagine how much energy and talent we would unleash if we get rid of poverty once and for all. I believe that a basic income would work like venture capital. For the people, I believe in a future where an existence without poverty is not a privilege but a right we all deserve. So here we are, here we are. We've got the research, we've got the evidence, and we've got the means. We all need to change our worldview, because poverty is not a lack of character. Poverty is a lack of cash. Thank you. Historian and journalist Rutger Bregman. You can find his full talk. At TED.com. I don't want to set the world on fire. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, The Big Five, this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to TED.NPR.org to see hundreds more TED talks. Check out TED.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, 
Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shugan and Benjamin Klempe. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. <laughs>